Welcome back to a bite of D&D where we add flavor to your games and campaigns. This is Micah, and across the internet from me is my co-host, Zach. How's it going, guys? And today, we are going to talk about Drow for the first time, because I apparently lied on Twitter when I said we were doing Drow 2.0. Me and Zach just had a brief conversation here before we started, and redid this intro because I was under the impression we already did an episode and I think I simply remember ranting about how lame the half CR drow were in the monster manual in one of our early episodes we have never done this episode before one One quarter quarter even worse so that's clearly why they didn't get an episode before because they didn't give us anything to work with yeah I mean there's better drow in the monster manual but they don't have what we're looking for, and I feel like... They did have a, a couple good things, but it didn't really capture the drow. It captured some of the creatures and things that could befall you as part of drow society. But, yeah. Uh, the drow from the monster manual, especially the quarter CR drow, should be considered like slave drow, in my opinion. Like, I agree. The worst of the worst. So, um, I, I guess with all that said, why are we excited to talk about real drow today, Zach? We are excited because Toma Foes did it right. Drow, in my mind, having read a number of the novels and gone into the lore of Forgotten Realms in a few different ways, drow have always been like the one material planes, creatures, sentient humanoids that should carry you up to the highest levels of your player character. They should always be a threat where other races and societies fall away. Hobgoblins, orcs, goblins, even to some extent some peers of giant society, once you reach the higher echelons of of tiers of play... They become more of an annoyance, more of a minor hindrance, uh, and less of a viable threat. But drow should always, when you when a drow comes onto the field, it should always be something that's concerning. You know, in a really roundabout way, you could actually say that orcs are the ultimate threat because they, in a very convoluted way caused the drow to exist. Hmm. Tell me more. The orc god did not particularly care. I'm going to butcher this. Everybody forgive me. Corlin, uh, it's not Caverlin. That's a king in your game. (laughs) The elf god did not respect his strength and his rage the way the other gods did. And that angered him. And after a battle between the two, the blood of that elven god is what created all the other elf deities and elves that we know today. So, in a way, the orc god created the drow by fighting with Coraline. Hmm. Well, that's... Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> I, we, we were having a discussion pre this about 
I feel like I, I think I'm maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I feel like most of the drow deities other than Loth are space fillers. Like, do they really serve a purpose other than to give a little bit of diversity? I mean, on one hand, you read a book and it's like, hey, these are the devoted of Loth. These are the these are Loth's children. And then on the other hand, it's like, well, but if your drow wants to be something other than a a diabolical, matriarchal, demonical cultist, then you can follow one of these guys instead. And you can even be a good aligned drow. Like it seems like they're wanting you to have both. My drow are evil through and through. And 99% of your drow should be evil. After reading through what's available in Tome of Foes, which we do not have time to dive into today, but I highly recommend any of you interested in drow read through it. The other gods definitely play a role, but to a much lesser extent, because to put any of them above Lolf would definitely bring her displeasure down upon you. And she takes a much more active hand in dishing out punishments to her followers than a lot of the other gods. So uh, they do play a very active role. The I feel like it, it from reading through it, the male drought especially revere the few uh, male drought gods because the society is uh, very much matriarchal. Um, and within a clan, a male is always going to be a second-class citizen next to any uh, females. Many of them do very much aspire to be like the the male gods, even though those male gods pretty much just tap out at being amazing consorts and good fighters for the females. But there is definitely a role for those male gods and the other gods within the society, just to a much lesser extent, I feel like. Yeah. Well, let's that's a good segue. Let's talk about the drow templates that we can start to find on page 182. And that go all the way to 187 of Tome of Thrones. Because there's a lot of... I think nice variety to be had here of like the higher levels of drow society and how different that can look depending upon the motivation of the individual drow and what they aspire to. Yes. Everything in here, like you said before, is exactly what the drow kind of were always supposed to be to me. Thing I found interesting is that the language on these sheets seems to be very specific more so I feel like than really any other stat block I have seen typed up in the monster manual and other sources and what I'm referring to there is the sexes that they prescribe to each of these creatures yeah it has weight and I, I found that interesting because it wasn't simply a it wasn't simply a, a word choice decision. It wasn't simply them trying to be inclusive and using uh, broader language to describe the world. Because this society is so heavily matriarchal, each of these kind of monsters, each of these really you could say uh, classes or uh, uh, statuses 
for each of these drow in the book are really either going to be male or female. The males have their place in drow society. The females have their place in drow society. The the one I found most interesting was the drow arachnomancer. Yeah, let's talk about that real quick. Kind of the, the caster male is is quite formidable. However, if you look at what, in my opinion, would be the equivalent female, the, the caster female, those are the matron mothers, and they are far more terrifying. And it's just a, a kind of an indication of, and maybe I'm, I'm way off on this, maybe that wasn't the intent, but having read through their society and everything else, it very much feels like this is a very deliberate choice yeah. with how they prescribe these characters. Yeah, I think I think drow society is one. It's, it's, it's it differs heavily. Um, the language, the the lore, differs heavily from other races, monstrous races like goblins or orcs or something of that nature, or trolls. In that, those you kind of have your freedom to describe them how you may and describe their culture to some extent how you may you know oh they worship this thing and they wear this type of armor or they don't wear armor and they they think that trees are evil or whatever like you can kind of make up whatever you want and then people will be like okay that sounds like a reasonable description of a goblin with drow there is there does seem to be this like wrote set of guidelines for what constitutes a drow. Drow are followers of Loth. Drow have spiders and demon associates. You don't ever... Imagine, if you will, a campaign where you're trundling through and you come across a wandering nomadic tribe of drow who worship a polar bear and who live in hide huts. Well, first... First of all, probably not scary because they're probably a quarter CR. Yeah. <laughs> but also, they don't feel like drow anymore. They no. feel like some other elf. I um, mean, which... at that point, they feel more like elves that are somehow polar bear kin because uh, polar <laughs> bears white. also have white hair and black skin. So at that point, they're no longer drow, they're polar bear elves. Actually, I'm hard considering this at this point. But yeah, I mean, even there's no other race of elf that's like this. You could say maybe like the Eladrin are fey through and through. But even that, I think, is more loose because all elves are to some extent fey. And so Eladrin don't necessarily have to belong in the fey wild. They don't necessarily have to have all of the quirks of their race for them to be accepted. But drow pretty much have to be drow and people frequently poo poo on the Dritzjordan of your built world. Well, let's get into that a little bit because I think with some of this information, I think a lot of DMs and players will have a little bit better idea of what it would take and the gravity behind what playing a good aligned drow would be. We're not going to dive heavy into the different gods and stuff, but they do have their moon goddess that we kind of chatted about back when we did our just brief overview of everything. But to worship the moon goddess very much has to be done in the most secret of places. 
That is a surefire way to be tormented for all eternity if you are caught <laughs> worshiping her. But it is a path that you can go through to justify playing a good aligned drow. And it definitely gives that decision a lot more weight behind it. Well, to some extent, and I don't want to get caught up in this a whole lot, but like if you read the if if you're reading the lore, it's like who knows about Illustrae? It's the matron mothers who keep the tomes a secret, the lore scrolls a secret. And so it's like, okay, well, what did your character do to where a matron mother let them read a scroll about Illustrae? Well, I think that's exactly why I'd have a little bit more weight. I don't think it's something that they were allowed to do, and I think it definitely puts them in danger throughout the campaign of being sought after by assassins and whatever else. I'm also not sure I think it makes a great level one character. I almost feel like this is something I would rather see done in a campaign where you're starting at a higher level, even if it's only level three, because at least then you would be an established adventurer in some right because you'd have your anyone would have their archetype and kind of everything else going along with that. But mm. certainly by level five, I could see you being an escaped drow constantly looking over your shoulder for signs of being tracked or followed as you try to break away from what you view to be an abhorrent practice. Yeah, I mean... Anyhow, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Higher levels, starting levels are more acceptable for drow players, but that's kind of the drow race that we haven't even touched on yet. Yeah. And we probably should at some point. Let's um let's let's finish up here with Arachnomancer and then and then kick on over to another thing. I really like the shape change feature that these guys get that they can turn into a spider, a giant spider, but that giant spider still has the same amount of hit points. It can still cast all the spells. It can do everything that the drow form can do. I think that that's kind of a fun, especially if you're, if you're running this and you have a whole bunch of uh, drow warriors running up on your party and you see a couple of giant spiders, almost certainly the party is going to assume that the spiders are the lesser threat and the drow are, are what's trouble. And this could be, a good surprise. And suddenly you see the spider's fangs weave together and a blinding light comes out and you're hit with lightning as witch bolt connects. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or it begins flying. <laughs> Just yes. a flying giant spider. Insect plague. I mean, it's got a lot of fun stuff there that I think could make it a really fun encounter, a good surprise. If your characters are taking on a lot of drow in the underdark, this could be a good, way to shake them up challenge rating 13 so it's going to be a high level party that that faces one of these for sure uh and not only does it have access to quite a few decent spells but that thing also has uh the potential to deal uh four four attacks well no i take that back i read that incorrectly they have two different attacks based on whether they're a spider or a human but both of which are very painful well let's uh move on over to the Drow favored consort. Um, surprisingly, a high CR drow at uh, 18. Yes. Um, what do we like about these guys? So, again, I this is kind of the step above the Arachnomancer. To me, this is the Arachnomancer that has proven themselves to be worthy of maybe more attention 
from the matron mothers, the ruling females, and that's how they become a favored consort. Um, it's a, a CR 18, more powerful spellcaster. They don't have, I, I mean, they're not the same thing. It's not like it's an actual step up from Arachnomancer because they don't have the ability to turn into the spider or anything else. But this is basically what any male drow would pretty Spires much aspire to. to. Yeah. I like that they are a full spell caster, pretty much. Um, I mean, they've got all the way up to six level spells. But I also enjoy the nice thing about Drow Society is that it's got several different avenues that you can pull from. It's got the spiders, it's got the demons, it's got magic, and it's got poison. Probably a couple other things. And I like that this Drow consort, if you look at it, scimitar, something nice that they do with uh, fifth edition rules is they typically keep the weapons base damage about the same. So it's dealing the 1d6 plus 5 slashing damage, but then they add modifiers to that in types of damage, and this one does 4d8 poison damage per hit. And I just really like... That, to me, speaks of like a very potent visceral poison on these blades, and it just gives a really cool flavor to them, as opposed to just saying, oh, this drow hits for 48 slashing damage or whatever. Well, I think it's twofold. It's great for the flavor and the theme of the drow, but it also prevents your players from going, so that a scimitar that hit like a freight train, I'm going to loot that, right? Yeah. Well, it's a normal scimitar. He just poisoned it. So yeah. the, the poison has worn out. You'll need to find some more if you want to uh, replicate. Yes. Yep. yep. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the use still of a scimitar and a hand crossbow. It keeps with the drow flavor. It they, they don't see the need of giving them some bizarre combination of gear. It's, it's the same thing here as what you'd find in the low CR monster manual. It's just that they have better poisons, uh, access to better poisons and the like. So, yep. I like that. Drow house captain. These are about as basic as your, your drow's going to get. This is a, a drow who has maybe established themselves martially to some extent. They're not incorrect, like particularly prestigious, but they do have some skill with a, a blade, with a weapon, and they're just there as kind of the, the house guards. I mean, I like them. You could see these guys maybe leading a, a small force or something, but they're certainly not going to be high-ranking by any means. Yeah, I like that they have the battle command and the parry abilities just to give them that extra feeling of being a commander. There's some CR5 drow in the monster manual that I think these would pair nicely with. Um, you could get a nice little squad together. And I do like the whip, though me personally, I would probably use that whip to issue the battle commands and actually strike my other drow with it or something like that. Like The whip to me feels like something that would be used on drow compatriots rather than the enemy itself. Yeah, kind of get them into a, a frenzy, get them riled up, because uh, there's not oh. a whole lot of uh, love between the drow. Yeah, and it, I mean, this whip does have, if, if the, it says if the target is an ally, it has advantage on attack rolls until the next turn, so that's exactly what it's doing. It's probably, because it's not dealing that much damage with that whip, so it's probably, it doesn't have poison or anything, so the whip is there as a motivational motivator. tool. <laughs> exactly. 
<clears throat> Moving right along. The Drow Inquisitor is kind of where you start to see the females differentiate themselves here and where they definitely get, in my opinion, more scary. The Drow Inquisitor is a CR-14, and, an, and the Inquisitor is typically someone who gets things done. They're smarter than another typical class. But these guys with magic resistance are really the only other drow besides the matron mothers that have it. So not only are they good at sniffing out lies and the the rumors and stuff, not only in drow society, but uh, if your party makes it to the Underdark, you're surely going to have one on your tail at some point. But they are resistant to a lot of things that you could potentially throw at them. I like that they are the enforcers of a society that is built on chaos that idea is fun to me that they that even within this idea this concept of worshiping a deity of chaos there's a recognition that hey we have to establish some semblance of of a hierarchy and in order to kind of reinforce that we've got to kind of do it in the shadows and we've got to have these these inquisitors that kind of can do their own thing to take care of it i love an ability that they have called discern lie. The drow knows when she hears a creature speak a lie in a language she knows. This is the ultimate shift in in an, in an interaction with a party because your spokesperson cannot talk his way out of it except in an honest way and that's almost certainly not going to be it's it's not advantage on the check. It's not a bonus to insight. It is yeah, just, just you know when you they're know. lying. Yep, yep. And I think that that's I would take that to the extreme. I mean, this is an inquisitor, so a half truth that's a lie. Like they know. So that to me is like really fun to like shake your party up, especially typically. I mean, if you're if you're facing off against a CR fourteen individual in the underdark, you're probably a pretty good level yourself. And you probably rely on some smooth-talking, silver-tongued player in your group, some some rogue or bard or paladin that has a way with words. And this Inquisitor cuts right through the, the manipulation that your party has gotten away with for the last ten levels and is going to make you kind of stand up straight. The other thing that I like that they have is this Death Lance, because I think the mechanic is interesting, especially if this individual was in a group of other combatants against a party. The idea that your maximum hit points is reduced in mid-fight is very interesting, especially when your cleric or your warlock or whoever goes to heal you or you go to drink a potion and you roll a lot of dice, but then you can't stuff them all into your lower HP character. That's just a fun... It's a fun thing. It's a fun surprise. I would definitely make that as a surprise for your characters to when they go to heal. It's not as effective, and that'll get them, that'll get them worked up quickly. So the final one on here, and we're running a little bit long on this episode, but we wanted to hit on a bunch, is the Matron Mother. We've got the uh, Shadow Blades after this, but we can just touch on them. There's not a whole lot going on there, so... So we've got the Matron Mother. Again, another very high-level caster, CR-20. It's one of the few non, basically non-god level uh, <laughs> CR20s in the game. This is what drow are supposed to be. This, this is why drow are terrifying, is the fact that a, a, just a, a, a matron mother can 
BSCR 20. Yeah, Bale, the demon Bale is CR 19. <laughs> so to put that in perspective, yeah, these guys are are pretty sweet. Again, they've got a lot of very solid spells. Uh, they've got the ability to cast ninth level spells, similar to the whip that the guard captain has. They can bestow Lolth's fickle favor as a bonus action, and they can lash out psychically, essentially, to an ally within 30 feet. 2d6 damage, and that ally would then have advantage on the next attack roll they make. Lolth, her blessings come with some potential drawbacks. But again, kind of spurring her underlings into action as a bonus action is pretty decent. And even her melee attacks aren't really to be <laughs> laughed at. Sorry, the tentacle rod is really interesting. I think, isn't there a tentacle rod in the in the Dungeon Master's Guide of some sort? Uh, there might be. I mean, it could be my memory playing tricks on me, but I'm sure I remember something like that. But but this one is, it just does so many things. It's, it's one of the rare items that is like, oh, this happens, and then this happens to you, and then this happens to you, and then you can't do this, and then your speed is halved. And then, like, it's just like a laundry list that you get to that I, I say get, that you have to throw on your player. Now, I, like I will say one thing that prevents you from shutting down an entire party. For that effect, I say effect, for all of those effects to go into effect, because the, the weapon itself doesn't do a ton of damage, the target has to be hit by the rod three times on one turn. So that does mean that the Matron Mother would have to land every single one of those hits, Honestly, not terribly difficult for her to do with a plus nine to hit and 15 reach. But if you manage to avoid one of those blows somehow, whether you use shield or a reaction or something like that, you can avoid some potentially very nasty stuff. The demon staff, however, isn't super nice either. It's a DC 19 wisdom save or you become frightened of the drow for one minute. And unlike a lot of other similar abilities, you're not immune to it after you succeed on negating that wisdom save. Yeah. So you can be constantly re-feared by that staff. Yeah. The other thing that it has, other than the legendary actions, which are basically stuff that you would expect in my mind, it has the summon servant, which mm-hmm. is basically a, a demon summoning, which all the... It's interesting. In the Monster Manual, just about all the drow listed there have a, can have the opportunity to summon a demon. In this, in, in Tome of Foes, it's relegated to just this one, but then there is variant rules to let any drow have a chance of summoning a demon. The Matron Mother summons one. It just it appears, and then obviously she has the legendary action that gets her to... Uh, try to compel a demon. Actually, she doesn't try. She doesn't. But th- I think, you know, the, the demon that she summons, the Yaklul or whatever it is, is a CR-10. So it's no no small fish. Well, and unlike other summoners, uh, and, and you kind of mentioned it, there's no try. She doesn't need a circle of blood to stand in to protect her if the, the demon breaks out of her control. She simply controls it until she's done with it or the 10 minutes ends. It's no great feat for her. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's only like 
seven of these drow matron mothers at any given time? Aren't there like seven houses, seven large houses? And this that's, would be that's probably fairly accurate. I need to do another deep dive back into it to see if it's specifically listed. But these would not be a common occurrence, and certainly should not be uh, taken lightly. Well, and Loth is special in that she often appears like materializes and takes on a material form and meets with her people appears to her people and so i think that sort of close connection with their deity like physical connection with their deity allows these humanoids to ascend to this height where where i mean i'd have to look through it again but i don't think that there's another humanoid in any of these books that that hit CR twenty, that's not from another plane. I don't think they do. Either. Now, I will say part of that is certainly because of just the society they live in. The path to succeed in drow culture is often about backstabbing and conniving and killing your way up the ladder at times, and so it's certainly a an environment that fosters only the strongest. Survive. Yeah. Well, um, do you want to just briefly touch on Shadowblade and then wrap this thing up? Yeah, so what I think is most interesting about the Shadowblade, and again, this goes back to I feel like Wizards has been very specific about their gender usage, uh, their sex usage. I, I know there's a line between those two, so no disrespect there. But there is, it's been very specific as to what word they use with each of these. As far as I can tell, the drow shadow blade simply refers to it as the drow, which to me makes this one of the few kind of positions within the hierarchy that both male and female could hold. And yeah. they're essentially assassins, which makes sense considering the society. Well, and they are like crazy cool assassins in my mind. Like their shadow step as a bonus action, if they are in shadows or darkness, they can, as a bonus action, teleport 60 feet. And when they do that, they then have advantage on their next attack roll, and it doesn't re have to recharge. It just they can do it every single round. So you have a creature that can move in a in a single round, ninety feet and attack, and then it can turn around and do it again, and it can turn around and do it again. And I think that that's really crazy cool for a CR eleven. Yeah. And then I don't know if you've looked at their sword at all, but that shadow sword is again just something that you don't expect. Oh, yeah, um, that thing is... That's pretty sweet. It does three types of damage. Piercing, necrotic, and poison. Which is something that very, very... I don't, I don't know that I could name another thing that does three types of damage on one hit. On one hit with no save. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just kind of a fun... Uh, again, I like that a lot of these creatures have a surprise element that even for an experienced party or an experienced player, there's going to be something here that makes them go, oh, oh, okay, well, that's new. Like, that's what we want. And uh, I think that you could do a dumbed-down version of that sword and give it to lower-level drow and get that same surprise at a slightly earlier level if you wanted to. And I think that that could be interesting. Well, I think... Um, and then, Sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, I, I was just saying, like, and again, that's one of those things, like you said earlier, that like a lot of that probably goes away. It's some magical coating or or poison property that's coated on a regular blade, or it's a shadow sword. I could almost see as being like almost like a warlock weapon that's tied to a shadow blade drow, and and goes away when they go away. Of course, all drow weapons, when exposed to sunlight, start to disappear, anyways. But well, the the most terrifying thing about that weapon is the five-foot cubes of magical darkness it leaves behind. One, it's going to make it harder to fight anyway. It's darkness. But part of their attack action, it doesn't cost them an action to do this, aside from they can only do it once per turn, is if the Shadow Blade either hits or if a target is within 10 feet of one of those cubes of darkness, they can cause that darkness to basically lash out at whatever is nearby it and do 66 necrotic damage. And that can just be done as part of the attack. So not only do you have a potential 2d6 uh, plus 5 piercing, 66 necrotic, 66 poison, but then you have another 66 necrotic from popping that cloud bubble Mm. all in one round. That's... That hurts. And then they can always just blink away afterwards. Well, and the only thing that I would do, like, the only thing I would say there is that it's a little bit weird that they're magical cubes of magical darkness, which dark vision you can't see through. And these guys only have dark vision. Now they have the superior dark vision that allows 120 feet. But if I was running these guys, to me, I would go ahead and give them, like, devil sight or something that really allows them to use that darkness to their advantage even more so. Well, and uh, the trade-off to that is they are CR-11. You could yeah. just, well, I one, I agree with you. I would do that too. But uh, resourceful players can use spells that produce light to disperse magical darkness. I think it's like level two or three, any spell that produces light would then disperse that. Yeah. I don't remember. Oh. So there are ways to get around it, but it's a very unique strategic element that I feel like a lot of other encounters and other creatures don't provide. But yeah, I guess ultimately moral of the story is if you're going to, into the Underdark, uh, bring sunlight. There you go. Yeah, that would be super helpful, actually, fighting these drow. I guess that's something that we did mention is that all these drow have sunlight sensitivity, even the matron mother so if you come prepared this all gets a whole lot easier yeah well we could go on and on about these guys i feel like to do drow true justice it would be a two-hour long episode but that is not what this podcast is just some things to get you looking at them get you excited definitely read through these guys's backstories the stat blocks there's a lot of good tidbits nestled in here in the the small blurbs and everything else that go with them i agree maybe maybe another time we'll do the drow race as a as a playable race or something like that but i think we've hand this into the ground for tonight well that is i think the end of our drow (laughs) 1.0 experience since all we did was lie about covering them before I'm so sorry to all 20 Twitter followers. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see you later, guys. See ya.